On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with the one and only Dr. Oliver Crisp about the doctrine of the atonement. We cover topics like just what is the atonement? What are the main historical understandings of the atonement? Are there any ecumenical or confessional pronouncements that require us to believe certain things about the atonement? Must we believe something like penal substitutionary atonement to be orthodox? Uh, And why is the atonement in the biblical world so violent? I mean, we talk about this and much, much more in the episode. And as always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out on our website at thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of The London Lyceum, a podcast that hopes to foster thinking especially for our Baptist friends. And we want to do that by creating an intellectual culture of charity, of curiosity, of critical thinking, and of cheerful confessionalism. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today, it's really my honor to introduce you all to someone who I really look up to as almost a theological hero of mine, Dr. Oliver Crisp. Uh, he, I think his official title is Professor of Analytic Theology over at the University of St. Andrews. And I'll tell you just a brief little intro, for me at least. Uh, I was first introduced to, to him and his work in a course of mine in seminary on the person of Christ. I was assigned this short little book, Divinity and Humanity, and I was immediately struck by a couple things. Uh, one of them was just the clarity. Another was the rigor uh, of the book. And another was the argument for defending the ecumenical creeds in a way, in a way that still affirms sola scriptura. And I remember being struck so deeply by this. I felt like I'd never read anyone who so clearly laid out the the, the priority and the usefulness of the creeds. And I really took away a ton of, from that book. I still do. Uh, and now I read all of Dr. Crisp's work because all of it is awesome and all of it's helpful. So I tell anybody who's listening, go read it. Go read all of his stuff. He didn't pay me to say any of this. Um, I'm just telling you because I think it's true. So before I get into all of it, and, and you know, now that I think about it, a lot of people on the internet like to bash analytic theology right now because apparently it's non-creedal or non-confessional or disconnected from the Christian tradition. <laughs> well, I think if you read Dr. Chris's work, you're going to find the exact opposite, and you're going to find some really deep, great stuff in the Christian tradition, thinking deeply and well on these things. So enough of my over-the-top commendation. <laughs> Today, we want to talk about the atonement. He's got a new book out on this. Um, before we do that, Dr. Crisp, maybe you give us just a little background into who you are, um, maybe what you like to study or read, and then why you were interested in uh, writing a book on the atonement. Thank you. Thank you, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on, on your uh, your show, on your podcast. I, I really appreciate it, um, your hospitality. I, I'm a bit bowled over by what you've just said there, uh, Jordan, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm very glad that <laughs> my work's been of some use to you. That's wonderful. Um, I mean, uh, why, why do I do what I do? Well, I mean, uh, I think the kind of um, stuff that I do is about asking the big questions that theologians like to ask, theologians and philosophers, I suppose, and um, it's the big questions that have, fascinated me most of my life and fortunately for me through a rather circuitous route I've managed to end up doing this for a living and I do feel very fortunate to do it in many respects 
Um, and you're right, I do this uh, currently at the University of St. Andrews here in Scotland as the Professor of Analytic Theology here, and it's a great joy for me to be able to be involved with the Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology at uh, the university uh, with some great colleagues, great students, and um, fun opportunities to sit, sit and think and talk to some really bright people and about some really fundamental theological topics. So one of those fundamental theological topics is, of course, the atonement. I mean, I suppose if you're thinking about fundamental theological topics, it's things like Trinity, Incarnation, and Atonement. Those are some of the first things that come to mind. And um, I've thought a little bit in my life about the Incarnation, as you've already pointed out. Uh, and it's natural, I suppose, to, to gravitate from thinking about the Incarnation to thinking about the Atonement. In other words, from thinking about the person of Christ to thinking about the work of Christ. And that's what I've done more recently. And this book, uh, Approaching the Atonement, is uh, the culmination of some of that thinking. Um, and um, it's been it's been a fun thing to do. In fact, I wrote it initially as a an accompaniment to a, a course I used to teach at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, where I was for most of the last 10 years. And um, it went through various iterations in the course and uh, various cohorts of students gave me great feedback um so that was where it sort of came together um but it, it was a it was a lot of fun to to write well let's i guess just jump right in on the atonement um a lot of our listeners are going to be very familiar with this concept um but i think it's always helpful for us to just start with some basic definitions so um i know there's a, a number of different kind of different views on the atonement we're going to get into that later but what is just a basic definition of the atonement and why is it something that we need to uh take very seriously in our study as christians well atonement is obviously a, a term that you don't find in the new testament it's a it's actually a, a, a sort of term from the earlier phase of the english language at one moment so it has to do fundamentally with the idea of uh, Christ's reconciling work. In other words, human beings are estranged from God by sin, and uh, at least that's the kind of traditional theological picture. And um, as a consequence of that, something needs to be done to reconcile human beings to God's self. Human beings are not in a position to reconcile themselves, so they need someone to do it for them. Christ provides that for us. So the atonement is that Christian doctrine that has to do with, or has the focus on this reconciling work of Christ, how it is that Christ, uh, in becoming incarnate and living, dying, and rising again, and being and ascending into glory and sitting at the right hand of the Father until the eschaton, how in doing all those different things, um, he manages to reconcile us to God's self. So that's the, that's the key claim of the atonement, that, that somehow uh, Christ reconciles us to God's self through some act. And then the question is, what is the act that brings about that reconciliation? And um, what, at least this is the question I ask in the book, what is the mechanism by means of which that act is brought about. And that's those are the sorts of issues that the book is particularly concerned with. Okay, so now help me think through, are there any main historical understandings of the atonement? So what I'm thinking about are, are there ecumenical or confessional or creedal pronouncements on the atonement that would limit me as a Christian to say, I must believe these certain things to remain orthodox? And maybe if that's not true, are there individual thinkers that have powerful influences on how we should think about the atonement? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, the interesting thing about the atonement, it seems to me, is that it's a central Christian doctrine. I mean, you can't really have Christianity without an account of the atonement. And yet, unlike some other central Christian doctrines, it's not got what we might call a dogmatic form, by which I mean, there's not some kind of agreed upon theological account of the atonement that, uh, you know, the vast majority of Christians down through the centuries have said, oh, yeah, that's the view, you know, we're Christians, and this is the view, and that's the view of the atonement that we hold. Now, of course, that's not true for, say, the Trinity or the Incarnation. So the other two central doctrines that I started off with, Trinity, Incarnation, Atonement, the Trinity and the Incarnation, both of those two central doctrines do have such a kind of dogmatic shape. In other words, both of them have a a particular form such that pretty much all Orthodox Christians affirm certain central claims about both Trinity and Incarnation, and it would be weird if you didn't. So on the Trinity, for example, all Christians affirm in light of the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed of 381 AD, all Christians now affirm that God is one in substance and subsisting in three persons. There are lots of discussions about, well, what does it mean to say God's one in essence or one in substance? What does it mean to say God is three in persons? But the point is all Christians confess that. We all believe that Christ, that, that God rather is three, uh, three persons in one substance. And the same with the incarnation. There's a, there's a kind of account of the incarnation that's bequeathed to us by classical Christianity, uh, the, the so-called Chalcedonian doctrine or the two natures doctrine that came out of the uh, Council of Chalcedon in AD 451. And on this view, Christ is uh, one person, one divine person, but uh, one divine person subsisting in two natures, a human nature which he acquires, he takes up at the incarnation, and the divine nature that he has naturally, as it were. So you have this odd thing where you've got two natures, fully human, fully divine, but one person that informs those two natures. That's also uh, a core doctrine of the Christian faith. And, you know, if you know anything about the Christian faith, you've probably come across something like this two natures doctrine, even if you've not called it the two natures doctrine. When it comes to the atonement, we don't have the same level of what I'm calling dogmatic clarity. And when I say dogmatic here, I just mean it's got this particular kind of definitional form that all Christians agree upon, or most Christians agree upon, in light of some consensus in the early church. There's not that same consensus. So what you find in the Christian faith is that there are different ways of thinking about this reconciling work of Christ that uh, crop up down through the centuries and different theologians put forward different accounts of the work of Christ. And they they tell sort of different stories, as it were, of what it, what it means to say that Christ reconciles us to God's self that pick up on different biblical images and metaphors and themes and sort of weave them into different sorts of uh, accounts or doctrines of atonement that often have particular or distinct sort of mechanisms at their heart. In other words, distinct uh, accounts of how it is that this act of Christ, whatever the act is, reconciles us to God's self. So that's, that's interesting, that you've got a central Christian doctrine that nevertheless doesn't have this kind of dogmatic shape that's uh, clearly articulated in, um, early in the life of the church. So you've got debate still to this day about the shape of the doctrine of the atonement. You know, I find it amazing. Do do you have any inkling for why that is that there isn't um, a dogmatic consensus on on the exact nature of the atonement? It's a really good question. I mean, I think it's probably one that's got a complex answer. 
But I mean, part of it might just be that it was one of those topics that wasn't controversial early in the life of the church, in the same way as the nature of God was controversial or the nature of the Savior was controversial. And so as a consequence of that, uh, it didn't receive the same level of kind of theological scrutiny um, that these other doctrines did. And there wasn't the pressure, both theological, you know, within the church and political from without the church, to actually find a way of expressing that that was acceptable to various competing parties. So my guess is it's both kind of political, sociological probably, and theological reasons why um, certain things got worked out relatively early in the first five centuries of the church and other things, even as central as the Doctrine of Atonement, uh, were not worked out. That makes sense. I, I think we had Chris Wozniki on back a while a while ago, who was yeah. one of your students. Yeah. And he was mentioning on the atonement that I think the Southern Baptist Convention put forward, I guess, an amendment of some sort where you pretty much had to affirm penal substitutionary atonement. Is that version of the atonement all throughout history? And is that something that uh, has that level of consensus where you'd say you have to believe this to be orthodox? Um, the short answer is no. Penal substitution is not a doctrine you find throughout Christian history. And um, do you have to affirm it in order to be orthodox? Well, that can't be the case. That you have to affirm it to be orthodox if it's not found throughout all Christian history, it seems to be. Um, so, that, I mean, some people will say, some people on the more conservative theological end of the spectrum will say, oh, certainly you can find um, accounts of penal substitution before the Magisterial Reformation, before, you know, the Protestant Reformation of 500 years ago, and they will go and f- try and find various nuggets of information in earlier theologians that look like versions of penal substitution. There are even books written on this topic. But my sense is that we, if you actually look at these earlier theologians, they do have um, elements to their atonement doctrines that are often that often include a substitutionary component. Sometimes they include a kind of penal component, and I can explain those two terms in a moment. Um, but you don't really find uh, a doctrine of penal substitution in the way that we have it after the Reformation, prior to the Reformation. So uh, my view is that, um, and I don't think is, this is a particularly eccentric view, my view is that penal substitution is a doctrine that, that sort of comes along as a consequence of the Reformation, um, various things that happen at the Reformation, but that really doesn't predate the Reformation. So it would be odd to think that you have to believe in penal substitution to have a right view of the atonement, since it seems like the first 1500 years of the life of the church, the church didn't have a doctrine of penal substitution. So that, that's what I would say about that. Nevertheless, It's probably worth adding. I think the elements of penal substitution are really important to getting um, at the heart of this mechanism of the atonement and the notion of Christ's work being a substitutionary work, um, as well as Christ somehow dealing with the what what um, is sometimes called the penal consequences of our sin. In other words, the the fact that um, our our sin ought to lead ultimately to punishment and separation from God if some act of atonement is not brought about to um, deal with that sin. Those elements seem to me to be really important elements that you find in penal substitutionary doctrines that do draw on some um, earlier theological concerns and that uh, that have um, you know have weight that Christians ought to take very seriously. It seems to me how you then sort of parse those, you know, how you then fit those into a larger account of the atonement is, of course an important question. 
Um, so, you, so when I say you can find these elements in earlier Christian theologians, you can find Christian theologians who deal with similar sorts of ideas, whether it's a substitutionary um, element or a representational element, you know, at Christ somehow acting on our behalf or acting in our place. You can find that way back in, in Christian history in the early church fathers. So if you, if you were to read, say, Athanasius or Irenaeus, for example, what you would find there is that part, part of their story their atonement story is that yes, Christ acts vicariously on our behalf. In other words, he acts in our place and for us. But what they mean by that is something different than penal substitution. You know, that's an aspect of their doctrine, but the, the, the it fits into this larger scheme of things. But the larger scheme tells a different story about the actual nature of the atonement than penal substitution does. And it's it, to them, the story is largely about Christ becoming human in order that we might become divine. So that's a, that's a rather different sort of emphasis than, than many contemporary accounts of penal substitution, though a substitutionary or vicarious element is very much part and parcel of what they're saying. So that's what I mean when I say you can find elements of the doctrine in earlier thinkers, but it's, I just don't think it's true to say that these earlier thinkers are adopting a penal substitutionary account of the atonement. That would be anachronistic, reading back into the past things. Yeah, it makes sense. Later, yeah. Before we go a little bit deeper on penal substitution, I just wanted to ask you about how, how much pressure do you think we should feel to actually um, settle on one view of the atonement? Should we feel like, okay, I need to, um, you know, my view is penal substitution or my view is satisfaction or Christus Victor or whatever it may be? Or, you know, can we, you know, take a little bit from all of those and, and, and form maybe a more... Um, well-rounded view that that catches all of the the different elements that those those different models offer us so um i think chris Wozniacki, you know kind of said this is like a, a kaleidoscope view where we um you know we see the atonement from different perspectives and it may look you know we may see different aspects depending on what angle we're looking at um so should we really feel pressure to say okay this is my model of the atonement or can we take a little bit from all of them yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and one of the things that I try to do in the Approaching the Atonement book is set out a number of different accounts of the Atonement that, that have cropped up some of the major accounts in the Christian his, in Christian history and say, look, here's different ways of thinking about the Atonement that provide, in many cases, different mechanisms, different stories of Atonement, and um, they're distinct accounts. Now, there, there's a, then a question, well, if the, these are distinct accounts, are they compatible accounts or are they mutually exclusive of one another? In other words, if you hold to one of those accounts, can you also sort of bring in elements of the others or must it stand independent of these others? Now, um, you're, you're, you've already alluded to the fact that in recent um, times, there have been a number of theologians, particularly uh, on the evangelical end of the spectrum, who've uh, wanted to say, well, maybe... Maybe what we've got is lots of different metaphors and motifs of the atonement in the New Testament in particular. Uh, and later, Christian history sort of teases out elements of those and develops separate doctrines of the atonement. Maybe we could um, have a, a kaleidoscopic account that's, that shows that these are all different facets of one greater truth, right? It's a bit like, you know, uh, you you see a statue from different angles and different angles you have different sort of vantages onto the statue. There's something there beyond your particular vantage, but you can't see the whole thing from the vantage that you have. You have to look at it from multiple different angles to get the whole picture. And in a similar way, the idea here is that the atonement is greater than any one particular uh, kind of conceptual picture of it. And we have to bring these different conceptual pictures together to get a, a greater picture of the atonement, which somehow transcends each of these different uh, vantages. 
Um, and so people like my uh, old colleague, uh, Joel Green, for example, takes this view and, and Mark Baker in their book covering the scandal of the cross, in which they argue that, yeah, what we've got here is uh, lots of different metaphors and motifs. Um, and we should probably think of the atonement in the kaleidoscopic way, bringing these different metaphors and motifs together uh, to, to give us a kind of um, multifaceted way of thinking about the atonement like you have uh, in a kaleidoscope. Um, there are other ways of, of approaching a, the, the, the term that, that are similar but different from the kaleidoscopic account. So again, in the book, I argue that um, there are some views that are more like what we might call a mashup account of the atonement. You know, you have kind of mashup music, you get different bits of music and you put it together, like in hip hop or something like that. You have mashup. Um, so you're, uh, you're pretty well, you know stuff out there. You're up on the time, uh, yeah. you know what a mashup right. is? That's right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, like um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is one of the great mashup novels of our time. I mean, it's underappreciated. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's mashup novels, there's mashup music. I, I'm aware of, the, of some of this stuff. Um, and um, so you have mashup accounts of the terminal, so it seems to me, right? So uh, um, on a mashup account, you, you take one element you, uh, that's one atonement doctrine and you mash it up with another atonement. So maybe you take a ransom account and you mash it up with a do- doctrine of recapitulation and a little bit of substitution, and you put that together. And then you have something like Hans Borsma's account of the, the atonement. So um, there are accounts out there in recent times that, that are kind of mashup views. They're not exactly kaleidoscope views because they're not saying let's look at all the motifs and just see them all as different ways, different ways in this multicolored picture of a term that, that help us to see something greater than these parts, a whole that's greater than the parts. Instead, the mashup account is saying, look, there are elements that we can bring together and fuse into a new whole that's made up of these parts. So there are different ways of doing the kind of mashup slash kaleidoscopic approach, and I discuss some of those in the book. My own view is that... Um, we probably do need something like a mashup account. Um, uh, there's there's some reticence in the current atonement literature to say there's one way of thinking about it, one ring that rules them all, so to speak, right? Uh, the kind of Lord of the Rings approach to atonement theories or atonement models. There's some reticence to do that. There's a, a lot of um, work that sort of um, fights shy of kind of very strong dogmatic claims. Some people do, but but it's fallen out of favor in recent times. There's more people that want to say, well, look, here's one way, here's one approach, or here's several different approaches that we can bring together in a helpful way, or, you know, this is one contribution to the larger discussion. I, I do appreciate that, but um, my own view is that we can probably adopt some, some kind of a, a mashup account that um, might be useful. Um, I mean, and as I say, in, in the recent literature, some people have said, look, no, no, there is a particular way of thinking about the atonement that's the right way. Here it is. But those sorts of uh, approaches to the atonement have been fewer than used to be the case, you know, 100 years ago. So if we take the, the mashup account, um, on your understanding, would there be one of those pieces that are being mashed together that you would consider to be um, indispensable? Like, for instance, you know, um, if we're going to put all of these things together, okay, we have to make sure that we have penal substitution, for instance, or maybe it's something else. And if we lose that, we lose we lose atonement altogether. So is there one uh, account that you're mashing together that is that is more central than all of the rest? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think I started from a kind of penal substitution 
background years and years ago. Um, that was the sort of view that I cut my teeth on, reading things like John Stott's uh, book on the cross and various other people as well, uh, J.I. Packer, people like that. Um, I think over the years, though, in encountering a wider um, spectrum of the literature, um, it, it came to it came to be the case that I uh, thought that well, um, maybe this isn't enough, or maybe this is too narrow, or maybe there are other ways of thinking about this that we have to take seriously. Um, so I do still think that there are fundamental elements of a penal substitution account that that strike me as right. I've already indicated that I think the kind of vicarious or substitutionary element is important, and I've already indicated that I think this notion that Christ deals with the kind of punishment aspect or the penal consequences uh, of human sin needs to be taken seriously. I think both of those elements can be found in the biblical tradition. Um, but I think that they need it needs to be augmented, and I think there are other things that you can find both in the biblical and post-biblical traditions that are helpful and good and um, will bring a kind of greater uh, depth of and richness to our thinking about the atonement if we add them to the mix, so to speak. So, for example, in my um, more recent reading of people like uh, the aforementioned Irenaeus and Athanasius um, and some recent theologians who pick up on these early Christian witnesses, people like T.F. Torrance or Kathy Tanner, for example, uh, it strikes me that the idea that somehow um, the, the uh, atoning work of Christ is about him becoming human in order that we may participate in the divine life, that seems to me to be a really important theme that you can find in the New Testament. And a number of New Testament scholars, of course, in recent times, have gone back and had a look at this sort of theme, particularly in the Pauline scholarship, and said, hey, uh, let's think seriously about this. The kind of things that you find in, for example, Romans 5, 12 to 19, and Paul's Adam Christology, or in, in 1 Corinthians 15, um, this isn't this isn't metaphor all the way down, so to speak. It's not just picture language. Paul really thinks that we are both united to Adam in some important way and united to Christ in some important way, and that our participation in, the, in Christ's benefits and our participation in the, the life that Christ offers us by means of the um, working of the Holy Spirit internally within us um, is is a work of participation, is a, is a work of real spiritual union, is a work of real nourishment. And, and how we then cash that out, how we make sense of that is really important. Um, and so Grant McCaskill or Michael Gorman or Mona Hooker, and there are other um, New Testament scholars as well have taken up these themes in different ways and, and sort of run with this notion of participation. So it's interesting to me that you have um, sort of New Testament scholars and the more theological end of New Testament scholarship thinking about uh, the kind of motifs and ideas in Pauline scholarship that that feed into um, some atonement theology. Then you've got um, this um, uh, these theological voices that are telling us that. Um, you know, a participatory element is something that we need to need to take really seriously, even from fairly early on in the in the Christian tradition, with people like Athanasius and Irenaeus. And in my own tradition, the Reformed tradition, this is picked up and, and refracted through Reformed lens, if you like, in recent times by people like um, T. F. Torrance and uh, and Catherine Tanner. So um, there are a number of different witnesses that together have helped me to see that a, a participatory account, this notion that somehow 
we um, participate in the, in the work in the life of Christ through the work that Christ does on our behalf, a kind of reconciling work for us, is is an important element that that may be missing from some aspects of penal substitution. So that's why I think the kind of view that I've landed on is a is a sort of a mashup view because there's certainly um, elements of this substitutionary stuff. Uh, and there's elements of participation. There's also some in the background, there's some elements of Anselm and so on. Um, but I also think there are things that perhaps are less, ex- less um, you know, that are more unex- unexpected, less uh, uh, prevalent in contemporary uh, sort of penal substitutionary views that we also need to take seriously. Things like Christ's moral example, um, perhaps even elements of a kind of ransom account. There are, there are a number of different ways, in other words, that these um, traditional um, accounts of the atonement can be brought under the aegis of a of a broader um, and richer account of, of the atonement, which I've ended up calling in this book and in my previous work uh, a union account of the atonement. Although you could call it a participatory account of the atonement as well, and participation is is um, it seems to me a key Pauline theme and one that um, atonement theorists probably want to think carefully about as well. Yeah, that's good. So, with, with all this in view, I, I can't help but wonder and ask why is the atonement in the biblical world so violent um what is it that makes violence so central to our understanding of the atonement or maybe just why is it that god chose or needed to use violence to do this couldn't he atone uh, by means of something more gentle yeah the violence issue is of course a, a is a sort of hot potato in contemporary atonement accounts and again, this is something that I do try and touch on in the book and there are many other people who've done um, a lot of work on the issue of violence yeah. in the atonement and some people who have tried to, to put forward non violent accounts of the atonement perhaps most famously j Denny Weaver's book, but there are many other scholars working in a similar sort of area um, and I suppose that the central concern. Uh, that you're kind of hinting at here is, um, you know, what this says about God, if God brings about an atoning act by violence and um, why it can't be brought about by some other nonviolent means. And so someone like Denny Weaver ends up sort of saying, well, maybe the atonement is nonviolent. Maybe we've misconstrued what the atonement's about and we need to rethink the atonement in in ways that reflect a kind of nonviolent sort of Mennonite approach to these things. Um, Now, I must say, for some time, I resisted that sort of uh, concern um, and thought, well, you know, there's, I mean, in a way, of course, the atonement's a violent act. I mean, it's a violent act crucifying someone. And um, so therefore, you know, you can't really cut away the violence from the uh, from the act of atonement without destroying the the, uh, the very idea that this is atonement. Uh, and, you know, surely in, in the Old Testament, the whole idea of an atoning sacrifice involves blood being spilt. Um, so you don't, you know, the life is in the blood. You know, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have blood spilt, then there's no act of atonement. Um, and the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is everlasting life. So therefore, you know, um, if the wages of sin is death, and Christ comes to deal with the wages of sin, then it's not surprising that death is involved, and so on. You can you can see how this that might go. That kind of approach may go. But I think through greater um, engagement with recent work on the atonement, uh, particularly. Um, those critiques of violent approaches to the atonement by certainly by a number of feminist scholars way back now in the 1980s, but also more recently people um, from Mennonite traditions and other traditions as well, has made me think that uh, that sort of 
sort of knee-jerk reaction from someone who might come from my kind of background is uh, is not not the best or most helpful way to th- to respond to these sorts of concerns um, because it doesn't really get at the heart of the matter. Um, in, to respond to someone who thinks that there's serious concerns about violence in the atonement, uh, to respond to such a person by saying, well, look, of course the atonement is a, a violent act, you know, that crucifixion is a violent act, doesn't, doesn't get at the issue because the issue isn't a kind of issue de facto. In other words, it's not an issue about what actually happens in the death of Christ. It's an issue about why God brings it about that determinant happens in this way rather than some other way. And that's a much more fundamental theological question that's much more difficult to to, to uh, really turn back, it seems to me. Um, so I've tried to uh, provide some account of violence in the, in the atonement. I mean, I, I guess my sense is that um, uh, God utilizes the violent act that brings about the death of Christ in order to bring about human salvation, perhaps despite certain, um, uh, you know, certain th- problems presented there by uh, human sin and so on. Um, but uh, I think there are real concerns here about um, the, the nature of atonement and why it is that God brings it about in this way rather than some other way. Uh, and I do think that some recent accounts of the atonement, particularly on the penal substitutionary end, that, that um, make violence kind of front and center to the act of atonement itself, um, make me feel rather squeamish. I think that that's really rather concerning. Um as if God must somehow vent, vent some violent act upon the sun in order to um, have human beings reconciled to himself. Um, so I've tried to um, move away from some of that language and some of those ideas in a participatory account. I'd still think that uh, it seems to me that um, the way that God set the world up is such, at least as it's reflected in the biblical narrative, is such that... Um, Death is a consequence of human sin um, because death is a way of marking human alienation from God and separation from God. It's a kind of penalty set. And so it is death that needs to be dealt with. And um, however one construes the atonement, uh, it seems to me that it has to deal with this fundamental need to address the curse and its consequences of human beings. And that ultimately means death and separation from the presence of God. Now, of course, in the in the early church, the way one way of dealing with that was the way of Athanasius and Irenaeus, and that's to say that, that Christ somehow enters into the state of death and destroys death from the inside out, uh, and that's how atonement's brought about. He he goes in and he co- literally conquers death, um, and there's something powerful about that kind of image. Um, uh, and I suppose in in that way of thinking, it's not so much a violent act um, in in the way that uh, it's construed in, say, some versions of penal substitution, as it is an, an act that emphasizes Christ's victory over this this negative state, as it were, or this this um, this uh, terrible consequence of, of human alienation from God. Now, it seems to me that that way of thinking, although I've, I've not gone entirely down that route, it seems to me that way of thinking offers us something um, that may be helpful that we may want to take seriously in our own ways of thinking uh, about the atonement. But I certainly don't want to brush under the carpet the question of violence. And in the book, I do have a chapter on, uh, I mean, it crops up in more than one chapter, but I do have a chapter on um, violence in the atonement and try to give some account of how it is that we deal with this, the problem of violence in the atonement 
because it seems to me that this is an issue that we have to face up to and 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 deal with head on rather than trying to elide or step away from i suppose this might be a good time to ask um you know how pastors in preaching um how we should communicate truths related to the atonement and um as you, we're, we've just discussed all of the issues surrounding how violent it is and you know on the one hand you know we we don't want to paint this picture of you know angry god the father you know um, you, you know, we've all heard the charges of cosmic child abuse. We don't want yeah. to communicate that. But then also, on on the other hand, we don't want to um, round off the rough edges. And, you know, because, I mean, the biblical account is very graphic in what Jesus endured, um, you know, and being beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross. I mean, there's there's um, there's really not any way of dressing that up and making it any less violent than it is. So what would your advice be to to pastors and how we communicate this. Cause I think there's two different ditches that we can fall in and, and maybe we need to um, be very careful about how we do communicate this. So I was just curious if you had any advice on that. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's been a long time since I was a pastor, but, uh, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not myself in pastoral ministry at the moment. And I understand that, uh, you know, pastors in different situations have, significant challenges to face when they're trying to communicate um, Christian doctrines like the atonement to um, their their communities and their people. Um, but, I mean, I think there's, uh, there's probably a need to be um, not just contextually relevant, but contextually sensitive um, when it comes to thinking about the atonement. Um, you know, preaching a doctrine of atonement um, to a community of people where the, the message that they take away from the sermon is God's angry with us because of our sin and he has to punish uh, in order to deal with that sin. Um, it's not that that's, that's a not very encouraging um, message and, you know, that's, that's uh, something that might discourage people, that, that may be true. It's that that may communicate certain things about the divine nature which I think are problematic. Um, I think if you're preaching to people week in, week out, um, the things that we want to communicate to people about the atoning work of Christ and, and God's intention in the atonement is fundamentally about God's desire to reach out to fallen humanity and to unite fallen humanity to himself and to be reconciled with fallen humanity and the extraordinary lengths to which God is prepared to go in order to bring that about. Now, um, that sort of approach, it's more of a kind of parable of the lost son approach, um, seems to me to be much more um, existentially powerful. Um, You can still fit in these other elements. You can still say along the way, you know, and in order to do this, the extraordinary lengths that we're talking about here involve um, the kind of the beating and the um, terrible anguish that Christ undergoes on our behalf that ultimately ends up in his being um, nailed to a cross. So it's not that you're um, trying to ignore that or bracket that, but it becomes part of a much bigger um, a narrative about reconciliation. And that was one of the themes that I was really keen on trying to bring out in the book, that, that fundamentally the atonement is a work of reconciliation. It's a work of God's grace. It's a means by which God reaches out to us and says, um, I created you to participate in my life. I created you not just that you might flourish, but that you might be united to me. That is 
what love is, after all, isn't it? It's to seek the flourishing of the other and to seek to be united to the other. And in order for that to happen, um, because of human sin, an atonement needs to occur. And the atonement is the, the bridge that enables us to, to be reconciled to God and to participate in the divine life. Now, that seems to me to be an extraordinary invitation uh, and, and a wonderful invitation. And I think if um, more of more of our churches heard that kind of message, it might really be, um, you know, the grace of God might be really apparent to them in in uh, in ways that maybe sometimes it isn't. I'm not I'm not saying it isn't. A lot of the time, I'm sure the pastors in church yeah. are doing yeah. a great yeah. job. I'm not trying to to, to tell them that um, you know <laughs> you should do better. No, I understand um, what you're saying for but sure. I, I think that that plugging into this larger narrative is. Um, is really important. Why do you think it is? It seems, especially in reform contexts, that there has been a tendency to focus so much on the other way of presenting the atonement rather than this way. Because, I mean, is there some sort of doctrine in in reform thinking that's driving them this way? Yeah. Or is definitely. it just more of like a, a culture that has kind of just taken root and you just follow it because that's what everybody else is doing? Well, I'm sure that there are cultural elements and, and sociological elements that probably factor into it, no doubt. Uh, and you can see that in in uh, particular places. So in Scotland, for example, where I am now, uh, the history of Scottish Calvinism, at least for some period after the 16th century, was, was one where you had a fairly kind of bleak uh, picture of God and... Um, a lot of uh, Scottish Calvinists who were part of the Church of Scotland or the Free Church or whatever, a lot of the time they were constantly, you know, feeling this, um, uh, the kind of watchful eye of God, like the kind of eye of Sauron over them and and um, constantly doubting their own <laughs> salvation as a consequence and can, how can I know that I can be saved? And in fact, in the Scottish context, it's, it's that sort of concern with assurance that's born out of a particular uh, Calvinist vision that even developed accounts of the atonement in Scotland. So if you think of what happened in the 19th century Scotland with MacLeod Campbell's Doctrine of the Atonement, MacLeod Campbell's Doctrine of the Atonement developed out of a pastoral concern that he had for his people who were coming to him and saying, how can I know that I'm really saved? How can I have a sense of assurance? How can I know that this, this judging God is really a God of grace to me? And that led him to this to the, his account of vicarious penitence, which is also something that's touched on in the book. So, I mean, I certainly think that that um, the kind of cultural context that we're in uh, has an important bearing, sometimes a very important bearing, as is the case here in Scotland, upon the shape of atonement theology. Um, but I think in my own tradition more broadly, and perhaps in uh, Re the Reformation traditions as well, you have this emphasis on human sin and dereliction. And because the Protestant magisterial tradition has such an emphasis upon um, the seriousness of sin and the corruption of sin and this notion of total depravity that you find in someone like Calvin and the effect that that has upon human beings, not just in terms of um, the corruption of human beings as a consequence of the fall, but also in terms of the guilt that at least some people in the Reformed tradition think that we, we bear in virtue of being born with original sin independent of any sin we actually commit, but just being we're born with Adam's guilt as well as Adam's sin, where you've got that kind of approach, it's perhaps not surprising that um, you have alongside that a, a fairly bleak account of the divine nature and, and, and how um, God is needing to visit retributive justice upon you uh, because of your sin and because of your the guilt that you've inherited from Adam. So I think that there's certainly 
you might think of the, the particular account of original sin and the particular account of atonement as kind of mirror images of one another, two parts of one larger whole. Mm. And where you tell a particular account of uh, human dereliction and what that entails, the sort of view that you find in a lot of the Reformed tradition, let's say, then uh, it's not surprising that on the atonement side of the balance sheet, you end up with a, a fairly bleak account of the atonement as a consequence, one that emphasizes punishment, emphasizes retributive justice, emphasizes uh, God's wrath for sin, those sorts of things. So, uh, I mean, it's interesting that you have that in, say, the Reformed tradition, my own tradition, I'm doing a bit of Reformed bashing here, although I'm a Reformed theologian. <laughs> um, but you don't have that in the same way in other Christian traditions. And at, at least part of the reason for that, it seems to me, is because they have a different account of this human estrangement from God. So, for example, if you were to look at Eastern Orthodoxy, the Eastern Orthodox don't have an account of original sin as such. They instead think of what's happened um, uh, with our Aboriginal parents as a kind of wound to human nature. They talk about the ancestral sin rather than original sin. So it's a wound that affects human nature, but it's not the catastrophe in the same way that it is in much Western theology, especially Western theology post-Reformation. And it's, perhaps it's not surprising then that um, that on the other side of their balance sheet, from the, the sin side to the salvation side, what you have is an account of reconciliation which emphasizes Christ's um, vicarious uh, action in becoming incarnate in order that he, he stoops, as it were, to scoop up our humanity and bring it into uh, the divine life so that we may participate into the divine life in the divine life so he deals with the wound he he he's, brings the salve to heal the wound of human nature in order that we may continue on this upward trajectory into participating into the divine life that human beings were always intended to to do so you can see how those two different pictures from two different um communions in the cr- christian tradition uh yield different ways of thinking about the atonement at least in part because they have different stories about what it is that we're saved from, so it seems to me. You got me thinking now, uh, incarnation anyway. I think you've defended a version of that, right? Yeah. So this idea where I guess, you know, God would become incarnate whether or not we had sinned because he wanted to unite us to himself. Right. Uh, If if that's the case... um, what would the mechanism for that union be without sin? Because it seems, it makes sense to me that the mechanism is uh, this, you know, event where Christ is crucified. It it can make total sense there, but if we don't have sin, then we wouldn't need that type of event. So how would he go about uniting himself to us? I don't know if that question makes sense, no, no, but that's sense. what you start. I started yeah. thinking in my head. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think it's a great question. Um, and it does make sense as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, yeah, I think on my way of thinking, and again, uh, this is really drawing on an, uh, on earlier sort of thinkers um, who've uh, developed similar sorts of ideas. Um, you, you know, it seems incredible in one respect to think that the atonement or this act of reconciliation, let's say, the act of reconciliation uh in the incarnation is something which is merely God's rescue plan. Of course, it's wonderful, and it's 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 true. It's a great truth of the Christian faith that it is God's rescue plan. No, I'm not denying that. But it seems incredible to think that um, that might be the only reason why um, God brings about um, Christ's incarnation. 
Uh, and although it's it's a kind of piece of theological speculation that some some theologians may uh, wish to fight shy of, I think there are certain reasons for wanting to think about this kind of counterfactual scenario. What if there was no human sin? What if there was no human sin? Would we still need some act of incarnation? Uh, would God have to condescend to us in some way in order that we might might participate in the divine life? Because I think thinking about that question, though it's a kind of speculative piece of theology, I don't think it's a piece of idle uh, theology. It helps us to think about concrete things that we do know, namely the nature of our salvation in Christ. And what it seems to me um, worth thinking about is this idea that's, that perhaps... Um, Perhaps God sets up the world in such a way that uh, he wants us to flourish and he wants us to participate in his his life. That's the kind of one of the fundamental aims that God has in the creation. And um, in order for us to participate in the divine life, God has to provide some kind of interface between divinity and humanity that we may, so to speak, access the divine life. Now, the analogy that I've often used, and I think I use in the, in the book as well, is um, a kind of um, analogy with a, a, a sort of wireless hub that your computer accesses, right? So you've got the you've got the hub in your room or your office, which is hardwired to the internet on one at one end, you know, so it's, it's kind of wired up to the internet, and then it's got this 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 outward facing part that sends out radio signals and receives radio signals from your uh, your your laptop, um, so that your laptop can connect through the hub. To the internet, right? That it's hardwired to. Um, now it seems to me that perhaps the incarnation is something like that. It's it's a kind of hub between divinity and humanity. You've got the the the, the aspect of the incarnation where Christ is, as it were, hardwired to the, to the divine life, to divinity. Um, but you've got this outward-facing aspect of Christ's life where um, he's able to um, uh, help us to participate in the divine life by not giving and receiving radio signals, as it were, but um, by being human so that we, um, by um, imitating Christ and being like Christ and being united to Christ by, by, um, through his human nature by the Holy Spirit, may participate in the divine life. Um, so the thought is that perhaps we need an incarnation, even if there's no human sin, because we couldn't bootstrap ourselves we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps in order that we could participate in the divine life there's too big a gap between us and god even if we were without sin so god even there has to condescend and sort of give us a helping hand in order that we may ultimately enjoy this kind of uh, participatory life this participatory uh, presence that uh, that he wants for us as um as the the loving creator who creates us in order that we may enjoy his nearer presence forevermore and it's that kind of idea um that i try to develop in this incarnation anyway argument now of course what's really great about that is you've got that it looks like you know as it were hardwired into the creation uh, where god wants to create human beings like you and i that participate ultimately in the divine life hardwired into that kind of a creation picture is a notion of incarnation. You know, it's part and past of um, God's purposes that incarnation happens. It just so happens that humans, you know, sin and, and fall away from God. Well, in that case, in addition to incarnation, we then need an act of reconciliation. But the good news is that because um, God has already 
set things up so that um, the incarnation takes place in order that we can participate in the divine life. It's just a kind of extension of that work of incarnation to reconcile us to God's self so that we can um, then be plugged into the divine life, as it were, through this, this hub that is Christ. So that's the kind of picture that seems to me to be an attractive one. It's one that makes the incarnation very much central to God's purposes in creation because it makes it a central component of what God's ultimately aiming at in creation. And he's ultimately aiming at, at least in one respect, he's ultimately aiming at a world in which um, his human creatures can participate in his divine life. It seems, based on how you've explained it, I think it's coming pretty clear to me how this might help just your everyday Christian in their own discipleship and virtue and, and love of God. I mean, this this union and participation emphasis, at least in my context, doesn't seem to be something that's been promoted or, or explained or, or, I don't know, preached on, right. <laughs> quite frankly, in my own context. So, yeah. I mean, it... it how does this shape the everyday Christian, would you say? I mean, I, I think I'm getting it from what you're telling me. Um, but yeah. just in your own words, what would you say is really important for the everyday Christian on this? Well, I think it's really important that we see what we are about in the Christian life, as it were, under the aspect of eternity. And if we see it in the light of an overarching vision of the Christian life where what we are looking forward to and what we can participate in right now is this kind of union with God's self through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I, th- I personally think that can, that can transform how we think about the nature of the Christian life. Now, it's interesting because a lot of um, sort of conservative evangelical Christians are somewhat suspicious of notions of participation. They worry that this is this is there's something something dodgy about this or something that we should be suspicious about. But, you know, you can find it in even the most evangelical of theologians. You only have to go and read Jonathan Edwards. um, And you can find this, for example, in his great work, God's End in Creation, which is one of the last works he wrote before he died, uh, in which he has this notion that that God creates the world in order that we can have this, uh, this kind of participatory life that goes on forevermore. And one of the wonderful things that seems to me about Edwards's vision, both in that work and uh, elsewhere in his writings, particularly in his sermon series, Charity and Its Fruits, and the last great sermon in that series, which is called Heaven is a World of Love. And every Christian should read that sermon. It's so, so wonderful. Um, what's great about that is that Edwards paints for us a picture in which it's not like we die and then we're kind of then in this sort of static glorified state, just sort of like plugged into some wonderful vision of the world um, that you sometimes get with some things like Thomas Aquinas, where, you know, you, you need a body in order that you can, you can have the beatific vision, but your body is basically there as a kind of organic vessel that to, in order to provide you with the means by which to have this kind of um, intellectual vision it's, it's like the body is kind of inert in in many respects on thomas's view it seems like a it seems like a nightmarish scenario to me not something that you'd look forward to it seems like a kind of dystopian science fiction vision whereas with someone like edward he says no no we're, we're in this on this trajectory of sanctification drawing ever closer to god sure when we die and we go to, to God's nearer presence, we're then transformed so we can no longer sin. That's true. But that doesn't mean that the, uh, that the, the this life of participation um, you know, becomes inert. It's not like we've reached some kind of terminus and we can't go any further. No, we continue to enjoy the presence of God and to know God better and to de- delight in the presence of 
the communion of the saints as well as delighting in the presence of God um, forevermore. And this is an ongoing, um, as it were, further act of sanctification. We continue to learn. We continue to grow. We continue to enjoy the presence of God in all sorts of wonderful ways. Now, that seems to me, if we got, if we got that sort of vision into the churches, <clears throat> that seems to me to be something to celebrate and something to get excited about. Um, that the world in the life, to, the life in the world to come, rather, is not um, some sort of uh, pie in the sky when you die, or, or some kind of um, terminus of all the, the the kind of groanings and sighings of this veil of tears, but it's a kind of it's a journey that goes on forevermore as we grow um, ever closer to to God. Not that we ever lose ourselves in God. It's not that like we become a drop in the ocean that's lost in the ocean. But the idea is that we're we're drawing ever closer to God forevermore as edward says there's never mm. there will never be a time at which we can say um we've sort of been godded with god or christed with christ but the point is that we're <laughs> drawing ever closer to the divine in this this everlasting trajectory now that seems to me to be something to really delight in and importantly from my point of view it's it's a it's a vision of the, the world to come that's both evangelical and reformed mm. Mm. um well, just before we let you go, and we're going to wrap up now, but um, do you have any other resources on the atonement that you think, you know, if we have listeners that want to, um, you know, outside of your own book, obviously, which we do want to recommend, um, anything that you, you would consider uh, to be a good place to go if they want to get more into um, reading on the atonement, whether that be from uh, farther back in the church tradition or, you know, more contemporary works? Gosh, yes, there's so many things. It's, it's just a question of trying to boil it down to a few rather than, um, uh, you know, lots and lots of different uh, different options. I would certainly say to uh, anybody interested in the atomic, go and read Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Go and read Irenaeus's On the Apostolic Preaching, both of which are short books that you can get in cheap paperbacks by SBS Press in, in English translation. Those two books, particularly Athanasius, but also Irenaeus, are absolutely electrifying. And I defy any Christian to read those and not come away with a kind of broadened vision of what God's doing in salvation. They're absolutely terrific pieces of work. For my own part, I'd also say go and read Anselm of Canterbury's Curdes Homo, Why the God-Man, in other words, in English. Um, that uh, is a much maligned account of the atonement, but we haven't really talked about it this, in our session today. But it's, it's also been an account of the atonement. It's been really important for my own formation. Anselm's one of those dead friends that I go back to time and time again. And I think Curdes Tomo is one of the greatest works on the atonement that you can you can read. And it's also very accessible, just as Athanasius is accessible, just as Irenaeus is accessible. Um, and uh, if you went and you read some of um, Calvin on, on at the atonement in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, again, heartwarming, accessible. He's giving uh, surprisingly heartwarming, in fact, in many respects. He doesn't give you the kind of cold-hearted penal substitution account. There, are, there is a kind of embryonic version of penal substitution there, um, but it's not the Calvin that you'd expect to find. So I'd certainly recommend um, Calvin to people. Um, there are more recent accounts of the atonement um, that uh, people might want to think about as well. Some um, less easy to read, so I'm going to try and skip over some of those. For, for example, um, McLeod Campbell's work that I already mentioned, uh, it's a great work on the atonement, but it's not the easiest read by anybody's um, estimation. Um, but um, I do think that in recent times, there have been a, a number of really good works on the atonement. I've already mentioned the book by Joel Green and Mark Baker, 
Um, um, and um, that's certainly worth looking at. Uh, but to my mind, probably one of the most important recent works on the atonement is by Eleanor Stump. And her book, Atonement, which is a bit of a tome, is nevertheless an extremely rich uh, read and definitely um, worth um, getting your teeth into, even if you end up disagreeing with some of the things that she has to say. It's, it, I mean, she explores an awful lot of material uh, which you know a lot of Christians puzzle over a great deal, and I think that's that's a work of on the atonement that's that's definitely worth taking seriously. William Lane Craig has just come out with um, his big book, Atonement and the Death of Christ, which I'm in the midst of at the moment. If if you want sort of like the state of the art on penal substitution, in other words, if you're going to you know you is do or die for you, it's penal substitution or nothing. Uh, then he's probably the best you're going to get in in recent times and he does a pretty sophisticated account of dealing with the penal substitution account but i would certainly encourage people to read broadly to read outside their tradition to not be afraid to do so and what you will quickly discover is there's great riches uh in the in the communion of the different communions of the christian faith on the doctrine of the atonement and the more you read the 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 more i think it will expand um your vision of of this great reconciling this great reconciling work of christ that god brings about for our salvation. That's awesome. So if people want to follow your work, I know you come out with books and different things and they can, you know, Google those. Is there like a one-stop shop where they can find new articles that you're putting out or anything like that? Gosh, you know, uh, there, I, there isn't. Um, yes, I. some of my philosopher friends do have these kind of web pages that where they can just showcase the work that they're doing at we theologians don't tend to do that so much. <laughs> um, I mean, people could look up on my university page and they would find some of the things that uh, that I've been doing or my academia.edu page, maybe, uh, something like that. But uh, I don't, um, or I suppose probably you could look it up on amazon.com. If I suppose, I, I, I do have an author page on amazon.com. So I suppose if you right. want to look up the author page on amazon.com, then you'll, you'll, get, the, the, you'll get the stuff that's... In, oh yeah. In, uh, okay. Anyway. I, I just clicked it, and it, it it does seem to have most everything in there. I mean, I feel like you've got a lot of a lot of cool stuff in here. What I read, um, you just had this new book with Jordan Wesley and James Arcadi on like what is analytic yeah. theology with real. Um, oh, that one. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I had another book in my hand. There. That one's a little more pricey, but I thought it was really yeah. really good, uh, really helpful. Just kind of defining what analytic Thank theology you. is, yeah, and defending off some potential yes. objections. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was a fun thing to do with Jordan and James on a, a when we were working together at uh, Fuller. And um, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, it was published with Brill. It's a great European academic press, but Brill tends to be rather expensive. Uh, there is um, <clears throat> there's a version of it that's a kind of um, that's in one of their journals, so um, people who've got um, library access can probably get hold of that fairly easily. But yeah, unfortunately, otherwise it's a little bit expensive. But it was a fun thing to do, and Jordan and James are. You know, terrific theologians from whom I've learned a great deal over the years. As far as your atonement book goes, I know it's very affordable, so everybody can go buy it. Yes, thank um, goodness for that. Get, yeah. it, get it for Christmas or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, uh, give it away. Yeah, um, I, I think it's great. So, Doctor Chris, I want to say thank you for coming on and talking to us about all this. I think this was really fascinating. Oh, well, again, thanks. for people who are listening, yeah. I mean, I, 
I commend everything that he's written. So, I mean, I don't think I agree with everything you've written, but I think I've benefited from every single thing you've written. Yeah. Okay. So I always come away learning, thinking, understanding more broadly the issues at play. Um, so I think you're really a model uh, theologian okay. and, and thinker. Thank you very so much. So I commend all that stuff to everybody. And you even you got two Lord of the Rings references in this interview. <laughs> so in my mind, this is like top shelf stuff. <laughs> So, You've got to get it in there. You've got to get it in there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I love that. So everybody, you guys have been listening. Again, tell you to check out all the stuff. Um, share, it, share it widely. I think it really helps people to think and grapple with the issue, whether you agree or not. Anyway, everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in. And this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. 